0: This is the EWN Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Shrink Wrapped, a place
1: where you can work on shrinking away your problems and finding more rapture in this incredible universe. Today, we're going to talk about psychiatric diagnoses that are often misdiagnosed. While that may sound a little off the wall, there are, in fact, many mental disorders that are frequently misdiagnosed, either for a different mental disorder or even for a physical problem, and there can be many different things that can fall into that ballpark. I want us to look at common mental diseases, not rare things, and yet something that can often be messed up in the diagnostic process. To add to the confusion, there's been a tendency to diagnose some mental disorders in ways that make them seem medical to either help remove the stigma or promote particular drugs. For example, for a long time, anxiety was diagnosed by many people as mitral valve prolapse, so you would think it was physical instead of mental and not feel bad about needing treatment. And of course, we have all of the chemical imbalance issues, which are mostly a sales approach. I also want to point out that while computers have brought us many wonderful advances in medical care, those computerized records that should help improve record keeping and possibly even help in the diagnosis still have a lot of bugs to work out. We are not into Star Trek medicine yet. In the first half of the show, I will discuss some of the presumed diagnoses and what else could be causing them. And after the break, we will talk about some of the really, really important things that you and your loved ones need to know and do to help your physician get enough of the facts to make the most accurate diagnosis and thus establish the most appropriate treatment. We're going to look at just a few psychiatric diagnoses which really go high on my list of looking carefully for other things. Because with the current media trends and medications marketing, they're in the public awareness and are often reached for as a snap diagnosis, not only by parents and patients, but sometimes even by doctors, especially if the patient has paid too much attention to that adder article and really biased their history in that direction or if there's no one around to give a history to help sort things out. Alzheimer's is one of these diseases and it's one of my pet peeves in terms of diagnosis. The trend has become to take anything that smacks of confusion and memory problems especially in someone who is older, and immediately label it Alzheimer's, despite the fact that the original diagnosis term referred to pre-senile dementia. This is all really unfortunate because there is not only no cure for Alzheimer's, but also no treatment that really does anything other than very slightly delay the course of disease. People are quick to label something as a clear diagnosis of Alzheimer's when in fact the only way to truly, accurately diagnose it is via brain biopsy or autopsy, despite the fact that there are many technologies that they are working on. There are a couple of other neurodegenerative diseases that can cause similar problems and are also difficult to diagnose. On the other hand, There are many things that can cause problems with memory and confusion that are treatable, sometimes just to ease the symptoms and sometimes to remove them completely and fix the disease. While the degree of severity is not always as bad as some of the true dementias, they can be bad enough to cause one to be concerned that it might be developing. So what are some of these problems and how do they cause problems? Well, first of all, anything that causes a decreased blood flow to the brain, such as cerebrovascular disease, low blood pressure, or fluid depletion can be an issue. Electrolyte imbalance is yet another issue that can happen. Head trauma can cause problems. It can cause things like a subdural hematoma, it can cause concussive issues like those now noticed in football players, but even more subtle ones that can impair mood, memory, and concentration. They can also produce poor blood flow and inability to function properly. Sometimes severe head injuries are overlooked as a cause of emotional and mental decline. Even a whiplash, though rare, can cause mental decline, although usually of a much milder degree. Another issue is brain tumors. There are also many medications that can, for some people, cause problems, either individually or in combination. Infection is a really, really Big issue in producing dementia like symptoms, especially in older women, because of the problems it creates in change in body chemistry. Urinary tract infections, when cleared up, can produce an immediate improvement. However, I also had a young woman who had herpes virus that manifested as mouth ulcers, and this woman. become so demented that even though she was a police officer, she could have problems putting her shoes on. When we diagnosed and treated with the proper antiviral medication, her problems resolved. Her father brought in and showed me a grocery bag half full of medications that had failed to help her. So it's not just an issue in the elderly. Poor oxygenation because of things like pulmonary disease can be a problem, so can depression and grief. Another big one is abusable substances such as alcohol and pain medicines, not just in the immediate period of when they're being used, but also because of damage they can do over time, both directly to the brain and also to other organs like the liver and kidneys. When you start getting metabolic problems, that can be a problem. Endocrine disorders are another thing that can be a problem. The first time I saw a patient with severe hypothyroidism, she presented looking very confused and very demented. Strokes, of course, are another issue, and so is psychosis. Psychosis can present with many faces and we'll discuss that later on. Parkinson's disease is also notorious for having dementia. Another diagnosis I want to talk about is ADHD. And you can actually find links to a four-hour series I did on this by going to my website, godrjudy.com. First of all, girls usually have attention deficit without hyperactivity. And the problem with that is that the diagnosis can be missed and also that the treatment is generally, although not always, different. These are the girls who are thought of as the airheads and looked at as not having a significant problem because they don't have all the behavioral issues. But they often have those same neurologic issues that interfere with focus and attention. In the usual presentation, a child is overly active with problems focusing and concentrating and following through on all kinds of things. They may be a disruption at home and in class. They really like action activities like action games, active sports, and action-oriented TV shows. They are often much higher risk-takers than their peers. They might seem smart and yet make poor grades because of problems with focus and concentration. Ironically, kids with bipolar disorder often act much the same, yet they do focus and concentrate well enough to usually make very good grades, which is a factor that often helps separate them. Onset, especially for boys, is very early in life. Usually preschool. And if the problems don't come on very early in life, it's most probably something else. I've had some moms complain that the kid was even hyperactive before they were born. What are some of the other possibilities? Well, mental retardation and some other specific neurodevelopmental delays can be an issue. But so can depression, because some kids get depressed, and then they show it by being agitated and aggravated and acting out, and it also interferes with their focus and their concentration and all that sort of thing. It can also interfere with their energy level, their sleep, and a number of other things. Stress can cause problems, and partly that's tied to depression, but it can be things like family issues, divorce, moving, things going on with fighting in the family, drug or alcohol issues. Sexual abuse and other kinds of abuse can produce very marked changes in attitude, behavior, and school performance, but this is usually of very abrupt onset and comes on later in life. Peer issues like bullying can bring about sudden changes, especially if the kid is afraid to talk about it. Drug use and abuse. My gosh, think of this when your kids are having behavioral problems and don't fail to look for it. If you don't look for it, you may not find it, and it can go on and cause a lot of problems. Bipolar disorder is certainly another candidate, as are endocrine disorders like hyperthyroidism. Again, medications can cause problems, allergies can cause problems, so can other medical illnesses, including head injuries and things like birth-related injuries, infectious disease, and a whole array of other issues. In addition, if a child is well-behaved at school and only has problems at home, it indicates inconsistent rules, boundaries, and consequences at home. This helps stress the fact that it's very important for parents with kids of any kind of emotional problems to get some help themselves via family therapy and maybe even some special courses and such that help them understand the special differences their child has that need to be treated in specific ways. This can make a world of difference for both the child and the parent. And it doesn't reflect a failure of parenting. It just reflects that there are extra skills you need to learn. All kids are not alike, and what works with one may well not work with another. The time course for development of symptoms in ADHD is quite important. Again, the onset, especially for boys, is very early generally before they ever start school. And if it doesn't come on early, it is usually something else. Often kids go on undiagnosed for quite a while because people think they are just boys until the problem gets more severe and interferes more with everyone's lives and must be addressed. Again, if those symptoms come on abruptly later in life rather than early in childhood, Think about any changes that may have happened, including family disruption, medication treatment, foods, and so on. And if it's none of those, think in terms of physical, mental, or emotional, or sexual abuse. It's also, again, important to look for any history of head injuries and physical illnesses, especially infections that could affect the nervous system. Family history is also important both for ADHD and for many of those other issues, such as bipolar disorder and depression, because if someone in the family has it, it increases the probability for the kids and makes it more important for the parents to be looking at the whole situation. Again, onset in late elementary school or teens is not ADHD, but could be any of those other things and could also include things like rejection of a loved one fights with peers, problems at school, and so on. Although I've had people that don't actually get diagnosed into adulthood, when one looks carefully back at their history, one can see that that pattern was actually there very early. Let's take a short break here, and when we come back, we will discuss some other issues
0: that can be very significant problems. You're listening to the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com.
1: back to wrapped, where we're discussing psychiatric diagnoses that can be misdiagnosed. The next thing I want to cover is neurodevelopmental disorders that includes Asperger's and other autism spectrum problems. For whatever reason, Asperger's has tended to become a catch term in the minds of a lot of people for autism, or for neurodevelopmental delay, despite the fact that it is a very, very specific disorder. The whole issue of neurodevelopmental disorders is quite important, but it's also important to realize how many of them there are. There's been a lot of progress made, both in identifying the many kinds of developmental delays and figuring out what is the appropriate therapy for a given specific delay. Nonetheless, for all of them, love, support, acceptance, and helping this person develop their particular strengths rather than criticizing their weaknesses is really critical. That is, of course, a great strategy to use with almost everyone, but is especially important with these kids whose gifts and or limitations may be in a narrower spectrum. In reality, each of us has our areas that are stronger and not so strong, even in the normal and very bright arenas. And finding and developing the best talents is really important. So what are some of the specific learning disorders? There really is a very wide array of them. Certainly, mental retardation is one that falls in there, but there are many much less severe disorders that can involve reading, writing, math, speech, other kinds of communication, motor disorders, and even ADHD. And they each have their specific findings and their specific treatment needs. So let's look, what causes those neurodevelopmental disorders? Well, first of all, Autism as well as other neurodevelopmental disorders is a problem that children are born with, although they may not be recognized right away. Autism is not caused by vaccines, nor are other neurodevelopmental disorders. The best proof that it's not caused by vaccine is lawyers, because lawyers are always looking for class action suits against drug companies and other entities. With 4 million children a year being born just in this country and about 80% of them being immunized, if it were really an issue, there would be plenty of material to generate lawsuits. There are also plenty of facts out there to show that it is not caused by vaccinations. Addictions are another issue that I think people need more awareness in. Addiction tends to be treated as an isolated disorder in its own right. It's just addiction and it needs to be treated as just addiction because it's something in your genes and you don't have any control over it. While I agree it's important to treat it as its own entity, I do not see it as being simply an addiction. Over many years working with many addicts with many different kinds of addictive disorders, the most important thing I have realized is that it is not just an addiction as a freestanding disease. Underlying the addiction for the vast majority of patients, are a few significant elements. There can be significant painful incidents inflicted on them at some point in their lives, even as early as infancy, that can include all kinds of trauma and abuse that causes them problems, and accompanying that is usually a great deal of difficulty talking about those problems as a way of helping resolve them. Sometimes it's because it happened so early they don't remember, and sometimes because they have difficulty talking about it. That might be for biological reasons, or role modeling behaviors in the family, or a family taboo against expressing feelings, or all of this and more it can also be affiliated with major emotional issues including depression schizophrenia bipolar disorder PTSD and abuse which can be physical emotional and or sexual if a person in addition has any significant physical illnesses or mental issues in addiction to the addiction it just complicates the whole ability to diagnose and treat but all of the issues must be addressed. I believe that the failure to address those underlying issues, especially the abuse and the emotional pain, is a big part of why the relapse rate is so high, especially with substance abuse. But there are many other kinds of addictions also that can be equally destructive and usually relapse. These include things like food, exercise, religion, work, sex, high-risk behaviors, and arrays of many other things. When I'm working with any kind of addict, I first of all work with them on looking at the underlying driving causes, because until they see them, they can't work on them. But I also work with them to have them develop some kind of positive addiction that they can throw themselves into that will serve the same purpose as those destructive addictions. It will help them have something to focus on that takes their mind off of that underlying pain. That also helps their mood generally and speeds up the whole process of getting better. Bipolar disorder. Is another diagnosis that is frequently missed especially early on in its course because it frequently presents mainly as depression. Thus it gets treated as depression and one of the classic things is that it tends to be resistant to pretty much every standard antidepressant. Of course another part of it is that when people are feeling manic they feel great and they don't want to change anything or get any help. They don't think they need it, no matter how outrageous their behavior may be in the eyes of other people. Ironically, when I was studying patients with computerized EEG, the pattern I saw was pretty much the same for both bipolar disorder and partial complex seizures and Trauma to the brain, especially affecting the temporal lobes. To me, this explains why, except for lithium, the drugs of choice for bipolar disorder are seizure medications. And the lithium acts much like Lamictal, which is another seizure medicine, because both of them help smooth the function of neurons By improving their sodium transport. Now they don't have the classic seizures that people might think of, the grand mal or even the petty mal, but they will have increased areas of electricity in their brain that fluctuates over time and as with classical seizures it can be provoked with stressors and it does definitely affect their mood and behavior. There are of course other things that can produce the agitation and mood swings that are associated with bipolar disorder or cause symptoms that look like bipolar disorder, and these include drugs of abuse again, some medications, depression, agitation, endocrine disorders, especially hyperthyroidism, and various kinds of abuse, both physical and and mental. As mentioned before, it can also be diagnosed as ADHD and for me one of the separating factors is that when I give somebody a trial on a stimulant medication and they get worse, I want to immediately think about bipolar disorder as an option and just because a child is young does not mean they cannot be developing bipolar already. Family history is very important here as well, because if your parent has it, you have a higher probability. The last diagnosis I want to discuss is major depression. Certainly, depression can have its own biological roots that pretty much mandate treatment with medication. But there are other things that can be related to not only how we're raised, but all kinds of other stressors that can arise in life and that must be sorted out through therapy if you really want to help them. A real issue here also, though, is that there's a very wide array of medical illnesses that cause depression all on their own or can cause a problem with a person getting depressed because they have that illness. Open-heart surgery, for example, is notorious for bringing on depression. There are many things which can look like depression and yet are caused by other issues and will respond to the appropriate treatments, but frequently don't get a lot of response to antidepressants. These can include endocrine disorders, head injuries, brain tumors, allergies, medication reactions, electrolyte imbalances, change of life circumstances such as major moves disrupting a lifestyle, job loss, grief, serious financial changes, retirement or going older, and even feeling like having a lack of purpose in life. It's also important to recognize that for many high-pressure career people, especially men, depression or depression-like issues can manifest with what we call depressive equivalents, like declining performance at work, declining attendance at work, change of involvement with the family, development of physical symptoms or illnesses or even substance abuse, and loss of interest in normal activities. They may not even show the more typical issues of feeling depressed, like weight changes or sleep changes. Part of that is the pressure to keep that stiff upper, upper lip while attending to the job and all of the requirements of those jobs. And in the case of men, it's also part of the cultural training against expressing feelings. There is one other issue and that is the issue of schizophrenia. There's long been a tendency to call anything that hallucinates schizophrenia, and although we've made a lot of progress in that area sorting out things, there are many things that can cause psychosis and even cause permanent brain changes. However, treating them specifically like schizophrenia usually doesn't work. One of the things that can be an issue is drugs of abuse and I have unfortunately seen people who start using drugs of abuse early in life and it causes problems that look a lot like schizophrenia and yet there was no problem until they abused the drugs And often these problems don't go away. And I hate to tell you this, but even marijuana falls into this category. That drug that many people think is so harmless is not harmless in our young people. There are other drugs like steroids that can cause a temporary psychosis. And there are things like anesthetic drugs such as ketamine, which has also become a drug of abuse, and is now used as a treatment for depression, utilizing that temporary psychosis. Nitrous oxide is another one that induces a temporary psychosis. There are also a whole array of other issues, many of which have been listed above. Another issue can be sleep deprivation, which is a really significant provoker of psychotic features when it goes on too long, and also issues with infections, fevers, tumors, and electrolyte issues, and there are many other things that can also temporarily cause a psychosis and a misdiagnosis that can carry on for a very long time. Hopefully, you can see that making the correct diagnosis for someone, whether medical or psychiatric, is just not as simple as looking at one or two symptoms and coming to a conclusion. After the break, we will talk about what your role needs to be in protecting both the physical and mental well-being
0: of both yourself and your loved ones. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network, we invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com. Welcome back to Wrapped, where we're discussing
1: psychiatric diagnoses that can be misdiagnosed. Now we're going to talk about the very, very important things that you really must do to partner with your physician and get the right diagnosis and treatment as quickly as possible. It really is important to realize that physicians, kind of a lot like physicists, are in that position of the more they know, the more they realize that there is that they don't know. More and more possibilities become available as their education increases, and sometimes specialists have the greatest problem of all in recognizing something, especially outside their own specialty, but even within it. One of the very most important things I was taught, all of us were taught, in medical school, was the very, very important role history plays in treating the patient. In fact, it was described as the one diagnostic test that is absolutely essential. Where does that history come from? From you as the patient or from a family member. While it's tempting to rely on medical records, it's important to realize that these wonderful computerized medical records often produce more confusion than they do help. And there are many different medical record systems, most of which don't communicate with each other. And many of them actually take up more of the doctor's time making it harder for them to have the time to take your history. There's also a tremendous push by the insurance companies and sometimes by medical practice groups to process patients quickly, either, again, because of insurance issues or simply because of time demands and not enough doctors. Unfortunately, that also can cause the physical exam to be abbreviated as well. While a specific problem may not be totally relevant to a particular issue that a given doctor is treating, it may well be important in addressing the overall health of the patient and require referrals to other doctors to get those problems taken care of. I'm going to give you some examples. And some of these seem like no-brainers, and yet they're not. I saw a couple of things with eye doctors that really stood out to me. Uh, One of them was that the eye doctor looked at the patient's eyes and very correctly made the diagnosis of diabetes. Clearly, they not only hadn't done a history, they hadn't even looked at the whole patient who had a partial leg amputation. The good news here was that the diagnosis was on target and he did follow up about getting appropriate treatment. But there was another case where a patient had had eye surgery And the doctor had not even noticed a massive hernia sticking up from the patient's abdomen until I pointed it out. This patient clearly needed a referral to a surgeon for what could become a big problem very fast. I saw another case where a patient went into the emergency room complaining of chest pain. And he was worked up, and they didn't find anything but had him in observation, and the patient died. It turned out that he had peritonitis, and had they had the history that he had had a stab wound to the abdomen three weeks before, they might have gotten the right treatment and saved his life. I've seen things that are very confusing. A patient that came in with abdominal pain who also had a fever and turned out to have pneumonia. Now how in the world can that happen? Because our body can show pain in some organ other than the one that is really causing the problem. In fact that happens all the time with the brain because when you're not paying attention to your emotional issues, it will often give you pain in other parts of your body to give you some not-so-subtle clues about what might be going on emotionally. I hope you can see from this that the history is really, really important, and nobody can really know that but you. You need to not only know it, but you do well to write it down and to keep copies of important records that you can share with the doctor. I've certainly seen situations where even that caused a doctor to question what was going on. And sometimes that's an appropriate thing for doctors to do because there may have been a misdiagnosis. the point here is that it's very, very important for you to be a part of your own treatment team by paying attention to what's going on in your body when and informing the doctor. You do need to try and make this concise, but you also need to put the pieces together. In the case of someone who can't, keep their own history or can't relate it for whatever reason, small children or older people with memory problems, or even yourself because maybe you're unconscious with your disease. It's important to have that history written down and even to carry something brief about it and your medications in your wallet with you at all times. That way, if you have some kind of significant illness, and perhaps you're in a car wreck, you'll begin to get the proper treatment quickly. In the case of our kids, as they get grown up, make sure they have a copy of any important childhood records. It's interesting that in today's issue of using computers in medical care and diagnosis, there's a tendency to set up diagnostic trees, those things with yes-no answers, those zero and one on-off switches, and a lot of push to move diagnosis to that kind of a framework. Yet I would hope you would see from some of the examples above that dealing with humans can be much more complicated than that. This is another time when having that history really helps. So what are the important kinds of things for you to include in your history? Because you certainly don't want to give everything that's happened forever in your life. You want to be focused on what's going on with you that's a problem right now. So what are the most important things to track? Of course, the symptoms that you are having right now are very important, along with some that have been occurring more recently, but one of the things that's really, really important is the time course of what's happening. Is it something that just now happened, or is it something that's been there for a long time, i.e., did it come on fast or slowly? Is it a single event, or is it something that has happened repetitively? For example, if you're having repeated accidents, what's causing that? Could it be a medication? Could it be emotional stress? Could it be low blood pressure? Could it be drug abuse? You know, there are all kinds of things that can cause acute problems and accidents and injuries repeatedly, And that's an important part of the history as well. It's important to know what other diseases, both mental and physical, are going on. It is critical to know all of the medicines you are taking from all of your doctors, not just some of them. And also, have there been any medication changes? And if so, what were they? And when were they? Everything should be tracked as well as possible in a chronological order. A good example of this is that Ebola case that appeared at Presbyterian Hospital a couple years ago. There had actually been a nurse who got the history from the patient that he had been in Africa and had been taking care of someone with Ebola. But because the doctor didn't get that history, possibly because of those computerized records, and because the patient's symptoms weren't typical of anything other than a viral disease, the accurate diagnosis was missed and it affected not just that patient but hospital staff as well. Had the patient been more aware of the need to report the history, it might have saved his life. I cannot stress enough how important it is to keep track of and up-to-date with your own medications. You want to note what you're on, when you started it, what other medications might have been added or subtracted, and a history of medications you've taken in the past that might have worked or not worked or even caused problems, and what those medications were prescribed for. Because any given medication can often be prescribed multiple different kinds of things. For example, Elevil or Amitriptyline, which is an antidepressant medication, is also an extremely good sleep medicine and an extremely good muscle relaxer. So it's important for the doctor to know which one or all of the above you might be taking it for. Medical commercials and Google searches. Although both of these things can be very, very helpful in raising your index of suspicion of things, they can also give you information that plants a seed that turns out not to be accurate. Commercials especially are very carefully aimed to be very vague so that you have enough vague symptoms to engage a lot of people, but it also makes you vulnerable to then thinking you have something you don't. The same thing is true with Google searches because the information can be very useful and yet it can lead you to thinking things are there that aren't and lead you down the wrong path. So it is important to let your doctor know also if you've been learning any of the information from those sources to help them sort you through it. The same kinds of issues are important for both mental and physical problems in terms of the information you want to keep track of. It's also very important to understand that tie between mental and physical issues and realize that each can cause or worsen problems in the other and you cannot just look at one or the other and make your whole case, nor can the doctor. Do not be embarrassed to talk about your feelings because they are a very important part of what's going on with you. Sometimes it's trivial and sometimes it's not. I remember breaking my arm one time, and as the doctor was taking the cast off after two months, I mentioned to him that I was feeling depressed. He was actually able to reassure me that this is a very frequent occurrence, and he'd even had the same problem himself. The problems cleared very quickly once the cast came off. What was the issue? Well, it caused some limitations in my lifestyle, And that became frustrating. There are a lot of other things that can cause changes in lifestyle or limitation of activities and cause emotional changes. And while they may be a normal response, they may still be something that's important to respond to. Whether you have a serious disease that debilitates you or scars that remind you of your mortality or something that restricts your normal activity, it can be depressing and may need to be addressed with a temporary support from medication. Aging is another issue. As people get older and they retire, and they don't have the same set of goals that gave them a sense of purpose, they can often go downhill very rapidly and then become less active physically, socially, and every other way. And that is what contributes to a fairly high mortality rate in the first few years after retirement. A part of preventing this problem is finding important activities to get involved in. And if you're not aware of that and don't talk to your doctor about it, you won't know to work on the solution. A very, very important issue is the whole issue with medications. It is amazing to me how often Patients will come in and they will want to blame some psychiatric drug that they have been on for a long time for a problem that has arisen. While that can be true with both psychiatric drugs and drugs for physical illnesses, it's a whole lot more rare for something to happen with a drug you've been taking long term than to be related to some more recent change. And that problem that arises can be related to the new drug itself, if you've had a new drug added, or to the side effects of that drug, or to its interaction with some of your other medications. It could also be an allergic reaction to the drug itself, or even to some of the components that go into compounding that drug. So again, it's very important to keep track of what drugs you're on, when you started each of them, how much, why you're taking them, any dosage changes, and so on. This is really, really important when you're going to multiple doctors because you may be the only one who has the full list and the full time course. While computers may someday be more helpful in this, they are not perfect and things can be missed because of how they're done historically in a given computer system. And again, most electronic health records do not communicate with each other. So communicating between doctors who are using different systems is often not only not effective, but can be downright difficult. Even though my own office, was computerized. I always keep a paper record because it can be much easier than searching through the computer program. And of course, sometimes computer records go down and then you don't have access to the information. If you don't think that's important, think about the hacking that took place recently that shut down entire hospitals who could not deal with patients without the computers and the absence of past records to help them. So in summary, it's really, really important for you to see yourself as an important team player with your doctor. And the most important part of that is you keeping a history of your illness. When it came on, how long ago, what were the symptoms, has there been any change, what medications have you been on, what other doctors have you gone to, and any other information that might be relevant as we've talked about before. So I hope this has been very helpful to you. We will be back next week discussing women and the need for them to step into their power. For now, this is Shrinkwrapped
0: bidding you a wonderful day in this wonderful universe. (laughs) Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com.